You're listening to X-Ray FM on KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 in Portland and 91.7 FM in Nehalem, Manzanita, and Rockaway Beach. Streaming everywhere online at xray.fm. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm your host, Shasta Kearns-Moore. I've been a reporter in Oregon for 20 years and write a weekly newsletter for those raising disabled children at medicalmotherhood.com. In celebration of International Women's Day, X-Ray FM is hosting 12 hours of programming, amplifying women's voices and providing intersectional education on a diverse range of issues impacting women in Portland and beyond. Between now and 7 p.m., you will be hearing from some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, activists, artists, and professionals tell their stories to educate, empower, and inspire change. In this hour, we'll be discussing paid parent caregiver legislation in Oregon. We'll hear from three mothers of disabled children who have been working to pass legislation that would give parents the right to work Medicaid's in-home caregiver jobs for their own children. This was allowed temporarily for some of Oregon's highest needs kids during the COVID-19 public health emergency, but that flexibility will expire May 11th. There are two bills in Oregon's Senate Human Services Committee that could create a permanent program for some or all children who have needs high enough to qualify for in-home caregivers so that they can pay their parents. This is a pre-recorded conversation, but you can email dj at xray.fm or text 971-220-5979 to share your thoughts. Welcome to Tina, Rami, and Lisa. Tina, let's start with you. You have 17 years of experience and have gained deep medical expertise from your daughter's needs. Why do you think parents should be their own child's paid caregiver? Hi there. Thanks for talking to me today. Um, Well, primarily, I think that the main reason is my daughter wants it. It would be her choice um, to have me as her parent take care of her. I'm her playmate. I'm her mother. It's her home. And I'm, you know, she's the heart of the home. And I'm the best qualified to care for her. I have 17 years of experience, like you said, trying to navigate her very complex seizure disorder. Um, I know the nuances, uh, what, what is a seizure versus what is just a silly laugh that um, some people might not notice. They might see her little laughter and think it's just a laugh. And actually, I'm, I know that that's going to snowball into a seizure that could be life-threatening. And mm-hmm. it's just the years of experience that have taught me how to navigate that um, over the last three years of the pandemic, she has not been hospitalized, not once, because uh, I credit a lot of that to not only the care that I give, but the fact that there aren't so many people coming in and out of our home, um, you know, exposing her to various illnesses. This is starkly contrasted to uh, her being hospitalized, sometimes monthly, for the first 14 years, 15 years of her life. So, um, those are the, that's the main reason I want it. I, it's my choice to, um, to take, to care for her. I I love caring for her. I want to, um, be that for her and I know how to play with her. And, um, so it's just, it, it helps make the house feel more like a home. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the the main things that I'm coming to. What do you feel like, you know, this, this started in, um, 
I think it was February, January, 2021. So it's been two years now. What sort of benefits have you and June and the rest of your family experienced with this temporary program? Well, um, first off, like I said, she's, she's not been hospitalized. Uh, she's been able to, since she's been so stable over this last couple of years, she's been able to start working on her eye gaze technology, um, which is the first step of real true communication. And she's really making strides with that because she's stable because I'm able to work with her in the evenings and work with her in the mornings, you know, before she goes to school. Um, so that, that has been huge. It's great for my son also, who's, um, who gets to just function as a family, you know, without always having a nurse or a caregiver in the home, just to be able to be home, just us. And so that's been something that, um, has been really wonderful for us. That's great. Um, now your daughter is turning 18 soon. Um, and in Oregon, uh, parents of adults can be paid caregivers. So, um, what do you feel like, I mean, how are you approaching that transition? And, you know, do you think it's fair to be paid only once she's older and not when she was younger? I'm kind of scared of the transition. Honestly, there's so many things that are going to change when she's 18. Um, the one benefit is that we, that I will be able to be paid. Um, and I don't really understand the, the thought process behind that. She has always been a lot to care for. She's um, medically fragile. She's hospital level care at home. And it took a few years for me to kind of figure out all of the different, her care needs, but she's actually getting easier as she gets older. Um, so no, it doesn't make sense to me that when she turns 18 and nothing really much will have changed between her being 17 and her being 18, that I will suddenly be able to be paid. And there's, it's not a controversy. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. Those early years can be really tough. I'm wondering too, um, you know, I think we've talked about this before, but has June ever had any negative experiences with paid caregivers? She has, it's hard to talk about. She I think one of the worst things that happened, we shed some actual abuse. One of her nurses um, that we trusted to take care of her and that had been taking care of her for two years, we found out was not feeding her when he said he was feeding her and not giving her medications when he said he was giving her medications. We don't know if there's anything else that he did. We know about those things and we don't know how long that went on because obviously when we found out he was fired. But um, he did work here for two years. So, so that was awful. Um, also two nurses, they were not trained properly on ventilator, which my daughter uses, um, made mistakes that nearly cost her her life. Um, I came in to a situation where I thought my daughter was dead on two separate occasions. So while we need nurses, we really need to make sure that, um, we have the choice as, as parents to, to really vet them and um, to and to feel good about them, we, we're still traumatized by those experiences, and so letting people into our home um, takes a lot of trust, and and we need to be able to make those choices for our families. Yeah. So, ha- have you been able to um, to trust again and and hire others? We have two nurses now that um, that we trust. Well, well, and, and a school nurse, but we have two night nurses that we trust that have been here for, for a long time. 
um, when new nurses come, it's, it is very nerve wracking. And um, my daughter also took probably a year before she trusted people again. Um, she was very afraid, um, you know, from what she'd been through. Um, so it, it, it's been a work in progress. Yeah. So it sounds like there, it, there's still a hybrid solution, even, even during the last two years when you've been able to be paid. Oh yes. We would not be able to keep my daughter home um, she, because she requires 24 hour care and pretty high level care. We, we have to have nurses in order to be able to keep her at home. Mm-hmm. But how we'd like to organize that in our home is, is having night nurses and some day nursing for respite with most of the daycare being done by myself. Mm-hmm. That's what works best for us. Does she go to school? She does go to school. She's um, going to high school. She has also a lovely school nurse that has been with her for five years now that um, is a great companion to her. She they, they adore each other and going to school is a big adventure. Um, so yes, yeah, she, she's going to school and she just has a couple of years left. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. So um, these, uh, this temporary paid parent caregiver program in Oregon, um, these flexibilities were granted through Medicaid and have applied to states all over the country. Now, um, in the State of the Union address from President Biden, he called out home and community-based services, which is this program, um, as needing more funding. And it looks like they're trying to resurrect the Better Care, Better Jobs Act um, back from the dead. Now, I understand, Tina, that you've been talking with Senator Wyden's office. I'm wondering what they have to say about this idea of paid parent caregivers. Well, they've been supportive they've they've been cheerleading us and and the work that we've been doing to try to bring awareness to this um i would love to continue to talk to them more i'd love for this to become you know a federal program that's what we really need um so yeah we'd love to continue that conversation with them that's great all right well for those just turn tuning in my name is shasta kearns moore and i'm speaking with tina strasener a mother of a medically fragile 17 year old I'm also talking to Rami Ross, a behavior analyst and the mother of an autistic nine-year-old who also has Tourette syndrome, and Lisa Ledson, a registered nurse and mother of twins, one of whom is autistic and has cerebral palsy. We've been discussing their efforts to pass paid parent caregiver legislation as part of X-Ray's annual Amplify Women Teach In. I'd like you to remember to join the conversation with any questions or comments for our guests by texting... 971-220-5979 or sending an email to dj at xray.fm. Let's move on to Lisa. Lisa, you're uh, an emergency room nurse and mother of twin girls with extra needs. Tell us why you think parents should be able to be their child's own paid caregiver. Mm, That is loaded, Shasta. Very loaded (laughs) question. Um, My, you know, personal opinion is that each child is very unique and individual and being an emergency department nurse for 16 years exclusively in the Portland metro area so I'm Oregon born um I I've seen over the years how care has changed um but the one thing I believe that has stayed true is the love of a family especially family caregivers and how um, specific and personal 
they get when it comes to care and how not personal and specific I am as your ER nurse or the bedside nurse in whatever unit your kid ends up visiting in a hospital setting. Um, I, I just think parents are, you know, I am a parent too, just like, just like you said, Shasta, I have twin girls. One of them um, is significantly disabled. She uses a wheelchair. She has um, a G-tube to eat with, and she has lots of seizure disorders, about five different styles of seizures. Um, so technically she has epilepsy. And um, as a parent, that parent hat and that nurse hat get merged. And, and all I can think about is how tough that decision-making process is and how specific it has to be when you're a parent of a medically fragile or a child with behavioral needs like mine who has autism as well. And, and when I'm trying to make those decisions, I don't know how to teach those decision-making processes to others. I don't, I don't know how to do that. Quite, quite frankly, it's very challenging. So when I've had to do it, um, you know, in the past and current day, I'm training a new support worker for us in the home. Um, it, it's blended itself to be extremely challenging. There are, just like you said, Tina, um, about June and her seizures, there are certain seizure styles that my daughter has that are, I only know them. I don't even, I could try to describe them like I do to the school staff and it, and it just doesn't work. They get missed. And that's very scary for me as a parent. Um, so that would be my primary reason as to why um, there's just those things we know about our kids that, that you can't teach. Um, I think, I think I'm going to leave it at that. I have about 500 other reasons, but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, y- you train, uh, you're pretty high level nurse. And so you've trained other nurses, right? Can you talk a little bit about how that compares to hiring and training in home workers? Yeah, it's very different. um, Quite frankly, when you're a preceptor for a new graduate nurse or a nurse that's transitioned from another unit into the emergency department, there are probably two to six weeks of training Um, that goes on. It's very protocolized. You know, things in medicine are driven by protocols. I have a list, a protocol of number one through 17, and we're going to go over all those things. And you're going to highlight all the things you know to be true about that patient and the things that don't pertain to that patient and life goes on. That is not the case. And I'm going to use that example in the home setting with my own daughter of her seizure styles. I can't create a protocol for her five different seizure styles. I, it would take me an entire lifetime and I would probably get it wrong because I don't know how to teach that critical thinking part of, is it this seizure style or is it that one? And does she need the one milligram of this or the two? I, I can't, it, the teaching of it, um, it is so challenging as well as I'm teaching the, the pool of people, the caregivers that were being sent from agencies or that we're able to find aren't highly skilled. And I, I don't want to sound um, harsh, but they're mainly 18 year olds to 21, 22, 23 year olds who don't really know what they're getting into um, and have no previous uh, education or experience with this. So I sort of feel like training in my home 
is, is just training a, you know, teenager. I mean, I feel like I'm, I have another kid, quite frankly. Um, that's scary to me. I expect high level of care for my children, all of my children. Um, yeah, it's, it's very different. Do you think that the, um, there's anything that Oregon could do to improve the pool, uh, the labor force? A hundred percent. They, I think they should include parents as options. They, mm-hmm. we, we are a large population of highly skilled, ready to hit the floor running workers who know our children. It, you would instantly have a pool of workers overnight, just like we already saw. As soon as they allowed it in Oregon, we did it. Yeah. So um, I'm also curious about what, um, you know, what nursing looks like these days. We're hearing a lot about shortages. um, And are those shortages affecting people in these in-home settings? Or is it just at the hospitals that we're seeing that? Yeah, it is absolutely affecting people in the in-home setting. Anything from hospice care, home care, to the radiology tech, to the... um, surgery technician to the person answering the phone when you enter the hospital, staffing across the entire board in the medical world is short. And that is, to me, extremely scary. And I would like to see in Oregon, but also nationwide, us trend in a direction of bolstering in-home care and our community settings. Um, I, I don't want to have to use a hospital if, if I don't need to. There's things that we know we can do at home. We trialed this through the pandemic. This, you know, paid parents program, it works. Like we, we've already proven it. Um, we, yeah, yeah, it works. So when the, um, well, so we've heard sto- news stories about, you know, pediatric mental health patients who get stuck living in hospitals. Um, is that due to a shortage of home care or is that something that's deeper going on with the health system? Yeah, it's a mental health care crisis, along with the list of people, you know, the staff titles that I listed before um, as being short staffed. Mental health care staff at large in our state and nationwide is completely depleted. And that, I I mean, I personally know of a child who was in an emergency department for five months, five consecutive months. Uh, An under 12-year-old child was stuck in an ER waiting for placement. And that, you know, we, we... we have an ability to support families in their homes and prevent a five-month need for an ER stay or a placement. And we, it, it, people want it to sound like it's outside the box, but it's not. It's completely doable with the right resources. And I think this paid parent program is the start. That's the catalyst for this. Do you feel like that? That specific child um, like needed the, the paid parent option or is it more of a systemic? I mean, it's a little bit of both, but I do 100% wonder and, and I'm leaning in the wonder of I am almost certain that if this family had a paid parent program early on, and I mean, I'm in the camp of 
as soon as we know that two-year-old has X, Y, and Z support needs, let's start fueling families with ample supports to know that the trajectory is not going to land them in a five-month ER holding cell, right? That, that just makes sense to me. Um, it, but it sounds so logical. I don't, I don't know why we can't just move forward and do it. I, I'm sort of at a loss, quite frankly. Yeah. So on May 11th, the temporary program will end. It's connected to the COVID-19 public health emergency. So when this goes away, what do you think will happen to all these families? There are about 440 who are utilizing it right now. Yeah, I think it's going to take no less than six months, and we're going to find uh, houselessness um, and the need for uh, services that are not going to be available. And we we have had access financially over the last two years by being a paid support worker to find resources and have the money to do it. And that's going to go away and we're no longer going to be able to fund our own resources, but the resources won't exist either. I fully anticipate that I'm going to only give it till summer. I bet you by July 4th, I'm going to be checking in pediatric patients into the emergency department in massive numbers. And we're going to need to place them in places that we don't have access to. Um, so are, are you a paid parent caregiver right now? I am. So I think there would be some people out there wondering, you know, why would you take a 20 ish dollar an hour job over your 60 ish dollar an hour job as a nurse in a hospital? Why not just go to work and do it that way? Yeah, I, um, I used to be bitter about that. Um, but now after the offering and the start of what occurred during the pandemic, I, what happened is, is I realized it only took like two months for me to realize for my own daughter that the benefits versus the, the negative outcomes of me being home with my daughter and not being home with my daughter was that she actually stayed on a schedule feeding wise and medication wise that was profoundly improving her health. I didn't have to involve anyone else. So it allowed her father and I to, you know, one other caregiver to really cater to her need. And she was the healthiest I've ever seen her as well as we were able to spend time teaching her how to talk and she learned to talk. And so that is, that's worth, that's priceless. It's worth no amount of wage. That is what, you know, shined through was that I have this opportunity to not be without food. I can still buy food and put food on the table as a contributing member of my family financially, but I can give a hundred percent to my child. And she flourished. And I didn't realize that was an option. I was always forced to be at work. I, you know, I, I just didn't know until I was given the opportunity. And I don't think that, I think that's probably what's happened for a lot of us. And, and how do you go back from that? 
how, how do you, you know, how, how do you turn around and go back to going back and being at work 40 hours a week? I, it sounds not, not beneficial for the kid. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your experience. For those just tuning in, my name is Shasta Kearns-Moore, and I'm speaking with three mothers of disabled children who have experienced Oregon's temporary COVID-era program that allowed parents to work the in-home caregiver hours that Oregon offers to disabled children. We've been discussing why they want a permanent program to pass in this legislative session, and we're talking as part of X-Ray's annual Amplify Women Teach-In. We're going to talk now with Rami Ross. You're the mother of a nine-year-old with high behavioral needs, and you're a certified behavioral analyst. We've heard a lot about medical needs in the first half um, from Tina Strasener and Lisa Ledson, but what about children with behavioral needs? Why do you think parents should be their own child's paid caregiver when the needs are behavioral rather than medical? Thank you. Thank you, Shasta. Um, The support for kids with high behavior support needs really does differ. Um, There are some overlaps, of course. There is ADL supports. There's uh, medical medication supports. Um, But for behavior kids, we're often predominantly talking about uh, behavior management, which can be anything from really carefully controlling the environment, setting every every nuance, every detail up for success, um, to responding to problems that arise, responding to behavior like physical aggression uh, or self-injury or other dangerous behaviors like that. And, excuse me, responding to these types of behaviors can mean using really elaborate protocols designed by the child's therapist and support team um, and can include physical interventions. Often they do include physical interventions, Um, And then on the extreme end of that, that can include restraints. Um, So when we're talking about the child's welfare, of course, um, we want the people who are going to be using these types of interventions, uh, we want them to be the people who have the most training, who can show up with the most love and the most connection. And really importantly, the person with whom the child feels the most safe, uh, because these are potentially traumatizing situations for everybody involved. Uh, There needs to be that safe connection there. Um, You know, it's not easy staying calm and nurturing when somebody is trying to hurt you. We humans have instincts and they kick in when we're being attacked. And, um, you know, I I work with a lot of um, DSPs professionally, um, in care homes and, you know, the most loving people and, and the most hardworking people, but there is an instinct that kicks in and it is hard to overcome that. And it takes a long time to overcome that and to be safe. Um, and I think that there's a connection there with parents that bypasses that, that allows you to do that. In addition to all the training that we get from, you know, the neurologist, the psychologist, the OT, the speech, the behavior therapist, all of it. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I understand that you're also a paid parent caregiver right now during the temporary program. I am. And so um, did you have any trouble getting onto the program? 
I had a lot of trouble getting onto the program. Um, I, like many other parents, had a hard time and encountered barriers that really don't need to be there, that shouldn't be there, that aren't acknowledged for being there. Um, you know, my son didn't initially qualify for the current program. And to, to explain it, that for the current program to qualify, the kids need to have been allotted 240 or more hours of attendant care per month. Um, and that's based on the assessment that determines what level of support they need. Um, my son was initially allotted 159. I shared this with other families and other, other moms, and um, I was encouraged to go back and actually look at the assessment and read it and see if there were any errors or omissions. Um, I was not encouraged to do this by the service coordinators. I wasn't even really given a copy by the service coordinators. So I had to ask for a copy. We got it, went over it, and boy, howdy. Um, there were errors and omissions all over the place. So um, we had meeting after meeting after meeting with case management, with doctors, with various providers. Um, his diagnoses weren't sufficient for getting the support, which, which baffles me because these are medical diagnoses. Um, we had to provide a level of documentation and proof that was degrading, uh, truly. Um, I don't want to go too far into detail, but these were situations where the diagnosis itself should have been sufficient because the diagnosis means that is happening um, and that wasn't sufficient. So we went through this process um, in the end, after three months of back and forth, uh, it was it was a full time job by that point. Um, his hours were increased from 159 hours, same kid, to 268 hours. Um, so we did all that work and, and then he qualified. But this isn't something that most families can do. Uh, you know, I am a parent who speaks English. I am a seasoned behavior analyst. I've been working in this field for 25 years. Um, I have experience with these systems. But what about um, families with single parents, parents working two jobs, immigrants, ESL families, families who, this is a huge part, families who don't yet know how to talk about the most painful and frightening details to strangers, um, and other marginalized families who are afraid to share, rightfully afraid to share some of the most intimate details with service coordinators they don't know. So how are they getting services? It's frightening to me what might be happening in those meetings, what their assessments look like. Um, and I've had the opportunity to help out a handful of other families since I went through my process, um, help them review their assessments, sit in on uh, reassessments. And really the experience has been completely consistent. Uh, the assessments really aren't capturing their needs. It, looks, I mean, I don't want to say this because this sounds, um, it sounds horrible and I don't think it's the case, but it looks willful. Mm -hmm. It is, um, it is so profoundly misguided the way it's done that you think, have they ever met a disabled person or who wrote this? Um, I, so it's just really troubling to me and um, I want to help every family I can get 
the support that they need and that they're entitled to, and to really have the extent of their disabilities captured, to be seen and witnessed, if nothing else, acknowledged. What do you think is um, some improvements that could happen with the eligibility and assessment processes for these types of services in order to make that a reality? Oh, boy. Um, where to even begin? I mean, for pay parenting. So I'll say this. Um, what motivated us? My son had 159 hours available to him, but he could not use those attendant care hours uh, if it couldn't be a parent. And this is really a common feature um, for a lot of autistic kids, um, for a lot of behavior support needs, neurodivergent kids. Um, you know, they have a lot of anxiety around outside providers. They often have anxiety disorders and OCD, um, sensory processing issues, and, uh, and histories of trauma related to their neurodivergence. Uh, it's, it, you know, operating in the world without accommodations in, a, in and of itself is traumatizing. Um, and that was my son's experience. We couldn't have an outside provider come in. He wouldn't allow it. He wouldn't work with anybody. Um, it would just be immediate meltdown, shutdown, um, you know, going into not being able to communicate, just an absolute, no, we can't have an outside person in the house. Um, so it was motivating for us because he needed the support to why are we doing all of this work? Uh, because he needs attendant care hours and I can provide or my husband can provide them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for a lot of kids, uh, I know for the medical kids, but also, you know, I can speak to the behavior kids and, and the ND and the autistic kids. Um, having access to that attendant care support within the family, within the home, is profound at every level, whether it's, you know, 20 hours or 100 hours or 300 hours. Um, these are families who those hours are meaningless if they cannot bring somebody into the home. And there are so many reasons why it wouldn't work out um, to have somebody else come in. I can, you know, give you that list if you want it. But um, yeah, I'm really curious on what kind of the effect of you know, having a paid caregiver in your home, you know, what's the effect on the family dynamic when that happens? Well, I mean, I'm always concerned about institutionalizing the home um, or anywhere really. As a nation, we're in the midst of a huge push to deinstitutionalize settings for the IDD community, and rightfully so, IDD, um, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, so as a society, and of course, as parents, we want our disabled kids, our loved ones, our peers to have access to the same experiences that non-disabled people enjoy. Um, so that includes a home that's private. So the dynamic just isn't the same when you have somebody outside coming into the home. You're not as comfortable. You, It's not your home. You, you have company. You have an outside observer. Um, and our kids have the right to have a home that is home, that is family, that doesn't have that institutional feel to it. Um, when you have outside providers, one thing we know that is that there is a high turnover rate. And this isn't just 
Oregon. Um, and this isn't even just the issue right now. This is decades of literature on a high turnover rate for direct care staffing. And that means you have staffing canceling at the last minute. You have new staff coming in. You have untrained staff, starting with people who have high support needs and really specialized fine-tuned needs. Um, you have schedule changes. You have unexpected transitions, which is phenomenal for autistic kids. I don't know if you've heard they love that. Um, all kinds of problems arise with the outside providers. We we didn't experience it, it from the get-go. It wasn't going to work for us. But this, these are the stories that I've heard from other families. And this is my experience working in this community professionally um, with direct care staffing um, in um, I, I work with um, community-based settings. So um, it institutionalizes the home first and foremost, and that's what we wanna get away from if that's the choice of the child. The child would rather have somebody else come in by all means, but I think many of our children just want mom and dad. That's who they want. Yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of seem um, different for an adult versus a child, you know, that there's this, um, you know, this kind of idea of, you know, having a staff member come in and then you can tell them, oh, I need help with a shower or can you chop up this for dinner? Um, but when it's a child, it's kind of a different scenario, right? Do you guys have any um, kind of thoughts on what the impact on childhood development would be of having a paid caregiver? Yeah, I I do. I um so my twins, I have twin 10-year-old girls. And I have found over the years when there is there's this um developmentally my my neurotypical 10-year-old, you know, able-bodied 10-year-old has this profound lack of trust in her immediate parents right? That me, mom and dad, and even her now 25 year old older sibling, her brother, you know, we, we all cohabitate, but for some reason we recognize that as she gets older, it's decreased, but there was a, a moment in her development where she was really confused as to who are these people in our home and am I trusting them or am I trusting you? Or is, are you the mom? Are you the dad? Are you, who are you? It was very obviously confusing for her. And we had multiple conversations about why this person was here for a month and did all these things with her twin sister, body caring things that are private, but didn't she, what that, that person wasn't there for, for her, that twin, but then they just vanished. They would just go away and she, and she would always be asking why do they just leave it was very very confusing lots of therapy and it and it was and to me that's unnecessary because in our family the disability is completely normal right we we just someone in our family uses a wheelchair it doesn't it's not this big glaring thing um, that requires strangers in our home. And so developmentally, it was super impactful for our whole family. 
it's yeah I don't I don't want it we had the same kind of experience with with um caregivers and and one of them was with us for the first eight years of my son's life my typically developing child um caring for my daughter they both loved her and uh when the pandemic happened she moved on and they haven't seen her since that was heartbreaking um we all miss her it was especially hard on my son and my son started to kind of get to the point when new nurses would come and he was little, he would build nurse traps <laughs> and place barriers because he didn't want new people coming that he would become attached to and that would leave. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it can be, it can be really a challenge. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing those um, really personal details of your home environment. For those just tuning in, my name is Shasta Kearns-Moore and I'm speaking with Tina, Rami and Lisa, mothers of um, minor disabled children. We've been discussing pending legislation for paid parent caregivers as part of X-Ray's annual Amplify Women Teach-In. I wanted to open up a discussion on the specific bills that are in the uh, winding their way through the Oregon legislature right now. Um, as far as I understand it, there's Senate Bill 646, which is a rather simple proposal that would just remove the restriction on paying parents of minor children and would add a transition program for when they turn 18. Senate Bill 91 is a smaller and more complex proposal that would apply to children with high levels of medical or behavioral needs and have a number of restrictions on parent activities, school hours, um, and other sort of um, uh, activities. So. I'm wondering if we could talk about um, what your guys' thoughts are on each of these proposals. And um, I think we'll start with Lisa. What do you think that um, Senate Bill 91 will uh, bring to Oregon? I don't love Senate Bill 91. I, I think it's um, very restrictive, quite frankly. Um, there is a very large population of children and families that need to have paid parenting accessible to them that are not going to be captured in Senate Bill 91 as it's currently written. Um, it would need some amendments. Um, I, I can't wrap my mind around logically why the other Senate bill that is fully inclusive cannot just roll out like the sun comes up in the morning. It, it just doesn't, it, my, my um, human services heart and brain as a, a registered nurse, I don't understand how we can say no. And, and I have heard that it's financial and I, you know, I'm sure somebody could tell me a thing or two about that. Um, but when you do not put money and front load into children and provide ample support for families from the beginning, you're, you're asking for trajectories to, to be off track. You, you are, you're just like that. You're just lobbing that ball right into the wrong direction and you know it. So you're agreeing to have that be the course. And that doesn't make sense to me. So, um, Senate Bill 91 is not my favorite. It would need a lot of work. 
and it would need a conversation um, involving the people that it intimately impacts in order for it to be perfect. Okay. And so this Senate bill, um, Tina, this is just for the state of Oregon, correct? Is there anything on the national scene? Not at this point. We sure would love to have that conversation. It, it would it just make so much sense um, for us. And we've seen the other states that, that are doing this and that have been paying parent and caregivers, um, and they've had really great outcomes. This uh, Our program has been going now for two years, The um, and we've had nothing but success, really. Kids are healthier and happier, and um, so, no, we'd love to, we'd love to keep this. Where are some of those other states that pay parent caregivers? Are there permanent programs? California, Colorado. Um, boy, my, my mind is having a blank one. right now. Yeah, Arizona has one. That it Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, what yeah. about what other ones, Rami? Do you remember? Um, New, ha New Hampshire. Am I remembering that right? Um, yeah. There's a great list, <laughs> but it's quite a few. <laughs> and um, so the um, so the other Senate bill in Oregon, six four six. Can somebody tell me a little bit about what what that would do? Just simply remove the restriction for parents. Uh, there's just a one liner that says, if you are the representative or which is also known as the parent of a, of a minor who experiences disability, who qualifies for hours, you may not be the paid provider. And we would just like that to go away. We just asked for it to go down the road. Um, it would, it would, it would open a huge allotment for anyone who qualifies and it would allow any child and family that qualifies for attendant care hours to access paid parenting. It's, it's beautiful. I'm making a, I know you can't see me, but I'm making one of those um, pizza, you know, wonderful the food. Chef, just the chef kiss. chef kiss. I'm making the chef kiss um, because it's just profoundly positive and it's so logical that I just think it's too logical. I think it's too logical. That's it, it would fulfill the promise that Oregon has made to these families to yes. we, we're allotted these hours uh, because our kids need them. Yes. In some cases we can't find the care and some cases we don't want the care, uh, but it would allow us to the children to get the services that they've been promised. Well said, Tina. It's perfect. What are some of the uh, utilization rates right now? I mean, how much are children actually using these hours that Oregon says they need? I The last statistic I heard was only 40%. That's, if anyone yeah. knows any that other. Sounds, no, that sounds right. Yeah. yeah. The utilization is quite low, and I think it's a combination of factors. It's... Um, it's not only the the shortage of workers, but it's also some of the issues that that I talked about earlier that affect um, both communities, the medical community and the uh, behavior community of, um, you know, safety and safety issues. And um, I'm trying to find the word. It's not thriving, but yeah, the ability of the child to thrive in the presence of an outside caregiver and the family um, 
choosing not to use that because it really won't work for the child. Uh, it's not in their best interest, um, which means that we have a program in place that isn't working. If there's 40% utilization and that's what we're banking on, then we're banking on a program that doesn't work. Yep. I, I don't know in other fields where 40% is a success. 40% nope. is a failure. I, I want to see much higher numbers. I want to see 80%. Um, I want to see a program that that is being used because it works, because it supports our most vulnerable kids. Yep. So I think that some listeners might be surprised that you guys aren't like, okay, everybody go and pass Senate Bill 91. Let's do it. I mean, what would um, what would it take for you to want to support that bill? Yeah, I need it to cover more families, more children. It, it's so limiting to the ones with highest needs. And I, it, the majority of those that qualify are in this middle moderate category and they're completely obliterated they're not even considered in this bill and i that doesn't work for me as a medical professional that just doesn't what, what, what what's that gonna do you know it, we it's yeah anyone else chime in i have nothing yeah left. i need it to be um less restrictive there's so many restrictions in that bill as it's written right now about the things that parents are allowed to do with their children um, while they're getting paid, like attend a sibling soccer game or go to the grocery store. And um, it's just un unnecessarily restrictive and it just, it doesn't fit in a family setting. I mean, it feels punitive. It does. Punitive. T tell me more about that. Um, you know, it's back to that degrading um, feeling that came up during the assessment that, um, <sighs> that we are just the re least reliable, <laughs> we are the least capable, the least reliable, the most likely to take advantage of people. We're just, we are parents who love our children who are disabled and we are trying to do everything we can to support them and help them gain as much independence as possible um, so that they have futures that are as independent as can be, as safe as can be, whatever setting they're in. Um, that's, that's what we're doing. And this idea that there are restrictions that are written into SB 91 that frankly, are redundant and don't need to be there. The only reason for their presence, it feels like, um, I will use an I feel, um, is to sort of showcase the lack of trust in parents of extremely vulnerable children. Uh, and that just is not the message that you hear anywhere else about parents. Either we're great or we are just lying, scheming, bad reporting. I don't, I, I don't know why else you put those things in there. There are restrictions that um, just go above and beyond what, uh, what other providers are or are not able to do um, or that are already covered by other laws. So they don't need to be pointed out again. Um, and it just feels very pointed. Would this create different rules for parent providers versus third-party providers? Yes. Yes. This would create different 
rules. Um, specifically, I think about uh, going into the community, about um, what, what types of activities can be done with the client um, during a shift. And during the shift of an outside provider, there's really a wide range of activities. And then during the shift of a, a parent provider in SB91, that becomes really limited to who else can be there, where it can take place, um, which makes no sense because I think the point is um, deinstitutionalizing um, self-determination. We want to increase access and frankly, normalcy that, that our kids deserve. Um, so it just baffles me. Those mm. even aren't my biggest issues. <laughs> Those are just frustrating. <laughs> Those are frustrating. And I just don't get, I don't get this idea that parents are the enemy. Um, I don't. So, I, I, so my issues are just around barriers to access. Yeah. There are kids who would have access to parent providers between the ages of four and 11 then per, uh, per Senate Bill 91, they would lose access to parent providers from ages 12 to 17. Yep. And then they would have access to parent providers again at age, uh, after uh, over age 18. And I, I don't understand why that would be and how that benefits those kids. Uh, it doesn't seem to be in the interest of those kids. Um, so that doesn't it's make sense. It's not continuity of care for sure. No, for sure. at all. And those are key years. Those are the hormones. Those are those teen years. They are fundamental. They are as critical as the toddler years um, and they need the highest support. So that um, that is one of my top frustrations. And then there are other, um, other uh, barriers in there about agencies and caps on how many parent providers they can have, which um, you know, it doesn't even look good on paper, but then when you really get to it and you really think it through, you realize that it creates a funnel so that even the few families who do qualify or this, the few children who do qualify, they, after they qualify, still wouldn't have access to a parent provider because there is no agency that could hire the parent provider uh, because of the cap placed on the agency. So some of these things just seem really unnecessary and again, punitive. Yeah. Gosh, it sounds really complicated. <laughs> I really it's appreciate it that um, you guys were able to speak with us today on this issue. If people want to learn more about paid parent caregiver legislation here in Oregon, where can they go and do that? Who has that? I do. I'll share it with you. Oh, great. Um, Facebook.com, A, D. So A is an apple, D is in dog, S is in Sam, Oregon. And you can find out um, more information. Okay. And uh, so facebook.com slash ADS Oregon. Yep. What is ADS? Um, Advocates for Disability Supports. Okay. Beautiful. Great. Thank you. Well, you've been listening to um, a discussion on legislation for paid parent caregivers in Oregon as part of Amplify Women on X-Ray FM, a celebration of International Women's Day. I'm Shasta Kearns-Moore. Stay tuned to Amplify Women on X-Ray FM until 7 p.m. Radio is yours.